Greetings in our Lord Jesus Christ and welcome to Christ Church of Livingston County Teaching Ministry. Christ Church is a member of the Communion of Reformed Evangelical Churches, Tyndale Presbytery. The following audio recording is from a Covenant Renewal Liturgy at Christ Church. We trust you will be edified and ministered to by the Holy Spirit through this audio recording. As we crown him Lord of all, we confess our sins to him. We turn to Acts chapter 1. This is part of the Ascension account. Acts chapter 1, verse 6, for our call to confession. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Thus far the reading of God's word. These verses from the beginning of Acts are right in the middle of that ascension account. First, Luke remembers the resurrection. Then he marks the 40 days that Jesus appeared to the disciples. Jesus predicts the Spirit's coming. And then the disciples respond. They ask if the kingdom will be restored to Israel now. Now, they often get criticized for this question, but they aren't completely off base. Jesus has been teaching about the kingdom all along. But the disciples want it now. They want to receive power, a throne. Well, they need, uh, we need to follow the king's timing. We do receive power, Jesus says. You will receive power. But power to witness, power to work for him. Uh, when we consider confessing our sins, we need to remember we want the benefits of being kingdom people without the work. Adam and Eve were like that in the garden. They wanted to be like God which was actually a blessing of the kingdom to come. But they didn't want the obedience. They didn't want the work. They didn't want the self-denial. They didn't want to trust God for it. But Jesus comes, and he does it right. He denies himself. He takes up his cross. He obeys the Father, and then receives his reward at the Father's timing. So with this in mind, let us confess our sins before Almighty God. Please kneel if you are able. Let us pray. before we read again from his word. Heavenly Father, as we have been reading your word, we ask that this word would be our only rule, that your spirit would be our teacher, and that the glory of your son Jesus would be our single concern. And we pray in his name. Amen. Psalm 110 is our sermon text. If you'll turn there taking a break from the Gospel of John for Ascension Day and Pentecost here the next two weeks. And Psalm 110 may seem a strange place to begin. One of my children said so last night. Ascension, Dad, we'll just listen. It'll come together. Hopefully it'll come together for us today. Psalm 110, let's read God's word. A Psalm of David. Yahweh says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Yahweh sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. 
Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. Yahweh has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. The grass withers, the flower fades, but this word of God stands forever. God's people said, Amen. Children, I want to ask you if you've heard any thunder in the last few days. Yeah, right, I have too. Thunderstorms are one of my favorite weather events. I don't know why, I'm weird. But thunder and lightning had some last night, a couple nights before, right? Uh, I'm convinced that God puts things like that in his world to make us look up and notice, right? To notice how big he is, how great he is. You hear thunder, it's, whoa, that's big. And God puts all kinds of things like that in his world to point us to him. And today we're talking about how great Christ is, the ascension of Jesus into the heavens where that sound comes from. So we're looking at Jesus ruling and interceding for us uh, from the right hand of God until he returns. So keep that idea of the sound of thunder in in your minds as we consider Christ ascending today. The disciples looking up at the clouds, right? The clouds have been all dark and foreboding recently. Uh, Jesus coming on the clouds. Well, let's look at Psalm 110 and we'll see, hopefully we'll see, uh, Christ in this psalm. Uh, Sometimes it's a bit difficult to discern. The the psalms sometimes gives us enigmatic pictures. uh, Pictures that are uh, shadows and types, as as the phrase is, of Jesus. But it's there and we'll pull this out uh, and look at Psalm 110 is one of the most quoted psalms in the New Testament. The apostles often come to this psalm to say, this is what happened to Jesus. And usually they're quoting the very first verse. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So let's start there, those first two verses. What we have here in in our modern uh, terminology is an inauguration. We know about presidential inaugurations. Right? That's the idea here. In, in England, they would call it an accession to the throne. Right? Someday we're going to have uh, not Queen Elizabeth, but another prince who, who is, accedes to the throne, who takes the throne. That's kind of what we have here in Psalm 110. We have Yahweh, and I'm using there the, the Hebrew word of all, the all caps, Lord. Right? And that's just to, to save some confusion. Right? The Lord says to my Lord gets a little bit confusing. And the Hebrew is actually, Yahweh says to my Lord. So you have to get the the three characters figured out in your mind here a bit. The one speaking is David, right? It's a psalm of David. And and he says, to my Lord, right? So Yahweh says, to David's Lord, is what's being said here. So who is Yahweh speaking to? Well, that's Jesus, of course. Uh, Jesus claims that for himself. Who, Who is He argues with the Pharisees. Who was David talking about when he said, the Lord says to my Lord? David's calling someone, the Messiah, his Lord. And yet he's David's son. What's that about? And they have no answer. I don't know. Because they don't understand the concept of Jesus being the son of God greater than David. 
So you have Yahweh here saying to Jesus, sit at my right hand. So what you have here is an agreement between Yahweh and Christ, between Father and Son, to give the Son the highest throne. Sit at my right hand. Take this spot. That's an enthronement. That's inauguration. That's, that's kind of a pitiful language, inauguration. It's, you know, paltry presidential stuff compared to sitting at the right hand of God, right? But it, it, it helps us, I think, understand what's the event that's happening, this enthronement. So Jesus humbles himself to the point of death, and then because of that, think Philippians 2, that God exalts him and gives him the name above every name. That's what's happening here. Sit at my right hand. There's a lot of uh, levels of authority and rule that God has set up in the world. But God gives to Jesus uh, the place at his right hand. We sing about this. Jesus, the Savior reigns, the God of truth and love. When he had purged our stains, he took his seat above. Took his seat above. That's what we're talking about. Ephesians 1. God seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. So Ascension Day is when Jesus goes uh, through the veil into the Holy of Holies, into the throne room of God, uh, past the elders bowing and casting their crowns down, past the angels crying out, Holy, Holy, and he sits on the seat. Only he is worthy to take the scroll, to loose its seals, Revelation 5 says. Daniel 7 puts it another way. He, He goes up to the Father and takes the kingdom given to him. And to him is given uh, uh, an everlasting dominion. Uh, I like how that phrase, just as a quick link between the Old and New Testament, uh, that phrase in Daniel 7, Gabriel quotes. When Gabriel comes to Mary and says, you're going to have a baby, it's going to be the Messiah. And the way that he says that is that uh, he will have an, an everlasting dominion. I think it's in Luke. I just went to Matthew, but it's not there. I think it's in Luke chapter uh, 1. Uh, yeah, his, of his kingdom there will be no end, Luke one thirty three. So there's a, a link there between uh, Gabriel, uh, who, who comes to Daniel in the book of Daniel. It's Gabriel who appears. And then that same Gabriel comes to Mary 400 or so years later, basically quotes himself and what he said to Daniel, says it again to Mary. Here's the one who will bring the kingdom. So uh, this is Jesus who ascends, who takes the throne. Uh, to him is giving every uh, kingdom uh, that, that is. So uh, there you have uh, verse 2 as well. Yahweh sending forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. So the Father is giving the Son rule, authority. That's the inauguration idea, right? That's when the nation comes together, swears in the president, and he now takes uh, the office. That's what's happening here. Jesus is, is now taking an office. That might raise some questions. Of course, Jesus is eternal. He's always been the Son. How is it that he just now begins to rule is a question we often ask. Uh, just briefly on that, uh, we have Jesus in his mediatorial office, we call it, right? He's ruling in a mediating way. He, he, he ascends to the Father. The first thing he does is he sends the Spirit, right? So Jesus knew the, the new way in which he rules is through the apostles, uh, giving them the spirit, giving them the gifts of the church, 
and so on. Jesus constitutes his people in that way and and then uh, uh, sustains, guides, instructs his church. That's what's uh, new about this rule. Well, verse 3, let's go on in Psalm 110. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. Here again, we have just very poetic language that's describing Jesus. The idea here is a a prediction of personal strength, right? A a holy people to rule. Uh, So uh, Jesus will be in holy garments. He's the holy one. His people also, uh, they will offer themselves freely. And then those last two lines are are basically describing Jesus in his uh, personal strength, right? It's a picture of fresh strength uh, from the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth. It's talking about the the strength of youth, right? Which I'm starting to understand as I'm getting older and, and I go for a walk and my kids far surpass me. They have a lot more strength and in their youth than I do. That fresh strength, that doesn't go away for Jesus. It, we get older, but our strength wanes. Our memory goes. Well, all kinds of things Ecclesiastes talks about. Not so for Jesus. He has an everlasting life and strength and vitality uh, that will never fade. He, uh, and, part of, and he's using that, of course, uh, on the throne for our good. Right? Jesus is not weary. He's not overcome by too many bad guys. As we often feel discouraged or overcome, you know, we watch the news and we quickly run out of our resources. We think, oh, I, I, what can I do about that? What, what can our country even do about that? How can we fix that? Jesus doesn't watch the world the same way, right? He, he has a, a fresh strength that can, that can handle anything that's coming. So Jesus has that strength. He has many followers, willing followers, verse 3. People will offer themselves freely. Well, that's uh, the authority, uh, the, the, the strength of Jesus in verse 3. Uh, and if you're following along in the outline, I'm going to spend the most time on the next point here, verse 4, the, the priest. Here, Yahweh swears and he won't change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, hopefully in your Bibles you've got the quotes there uh, for that and that, that God here is speaking to Jesus. Right? Again, he's just like in verse 1, here in verse 4 also, uh, God is, uh, is, is saying to Jesus, you're going to be a priest like Melchizedek. So here we get some information about Jesus, what, what he's going to be like, what kind of king he's going to be. If he's going to be on the throne at the right hand of God, it might be good to know some things about this guy. That's why we have all these election campaign cycles, right, where we want to get to know the people who are running. We want to know... Uh, something about these people who might be in the, White House, in the White House. Well, the Bible gives us information about Jesus. Uh, it tells us about him, about who our ruler is. So Jesus is going is to be a priest as well as a king. Uh, like Melchizedek, and here we have a hearkening back to Genesis 14, an, an obscure passage there, where Melchizedek was king of Salem, which is actually Jerusalem, and he was priest of God Most High. So there's all kinds of ways in which Jesus is like Melchizedek. That's one of them. He's a priest and a king. He's ruling and he's interceding. Right? Another way is that in that story, uh, Abraham had just come back and rescued Lot from the pagan kings, if you remember that. And then Melchizedek comes out and he blesses Abraham. Right? He blesses Abraham. 
Well, Hebrews tells us about this, uh, that the greater blesses the lesser. It's not the other way around, which is kind of fun when you think about Pharaoh and uh, Jacob, right? Jacob finally comes to Egypt. Jacob blesses Pharaoh because Jacob is the greater. Even though in the, in the political scene, of course, Pharaoh is far greater. He's got the palace and everything. But no, Jacob is the patriarch. He blesses Pharaoh. In the same way, Melchizedek blesses Abraham. And Abraham pays tithes to Melchizedek. Abraham recognizes the, the greater status of Melchizedek, the priest, the king of Salem. So Melchizedek was way before Aaron, the priesthood of that Israel sets up. God sets up for Israel. It, Melchizedek's way before him, and Jesus is way before Abraham. Right? So you see how Jesus is like Melchizedek. He's far greater than the priests that we conceive of. He's far greater than the kings that we conceive of. There's other ways. If you read through Hebrews, you find other ways that Jesus and Melchizedek are alike. But we don't have time for all of it now. Uh, but if you read also through Revelation 1, uh, John uh, has a vision of Jesus. And Jesus has on a long robe and a golden chest band. And, and that was partly priestly clothing as well. Uh, Jesus is shown as a priest even there. Jesus was a son of Israel as a priest had to be, but Jesus was greater than a normal priest, right? He offers sacrifice, but it's his own body. It's him. Uh, the, the priest didn't do that. Uh, and then Jesus enters heaven, uh, not as the priests entered the Holy of Holies with some other blood, with fear and trembling. No, Jesus ascends to heaven uh, himself and sits down in the house of God, at the right hand of God. What kind of priest is that? Far greater than any conceived yet. So, and Jesus doesn't have to do that over and over, the, Hebrew, the book of Hebrews tells us. His priesthood is way more effective than Aaron's. I like to think of that, uh, boys and girls, if you think about when you, whenever you get home from a trip, a short trip or long trip, like when you get home from church today, uh, there's a certain amount of, um, I don't know what the word is for it, relaxing, you're back in your own environment again, right? You can kind of, you go to your room and, uh, right? There's a little bit of that, and that's just, that's just socially normal. <laughs> There's nothing weird about that. Uh, but uh, think about that picture with Jesus entering his heavenly home, right? That's, that's how that is. How do you return to your home? Well, when you come in, well, if you're being faithful, you don't just go crash on the couch and turn the TV on. It's not like that. But that's not the idea here of Jesus going up to heaven. Maybe you put the groceries away, you confer with your spouse, you love to see what the kids are up to, and then sitting down and putting your feet up is part of that, right? You see, there's authority there, there's faithfulness in taking care of what's yours, but there's also an ease, a sense of this is my place, right? That's Jesus ascending to heaven. He has authority, great authority there, but it's also his place. He prays to the Father in John. Uh, uh, I forget the exact words, but, but he, he, he wants the glory that he had before he came to earth. Give, you know, return that to me as I return to you. He's used to that. That's his home. And he now sits at the right hand of the Father. Uh, or try a legal example if, if the home one is, is messing with you a little bit. Try, try a legal example. If you need a lawyer and you go into court for the first time, 
it, it, you go in there for the first time, and it's a little unsettling if you look at your lawyer and he's kind of acting like a rookie, right? Like your lawyer doesn't know the procedures, he doesn't know what's going to happen next. No, you, you want a lawyer who feels at home in the courtroom, right? Who, who knows the quirks of the judge. That's what we have in Christ, right? Your advocate, he isn't even sitting by you. He's sitting next to the judge on the bench at his right hand. And across from you in the court is Satan the accuser. And his case is a good one. It's true. You've sinned. You deserve death row. But Jesus Christ, our advocate, is the one with authority in this courtroom. And he's already taken your sentence of death. So he sits at the right hand of the Father. Try a third picture. Um, we have a, a, a cultural custom at more formal dinners, right? When the host sits at the head of the table, uh, the one who sits at his right hand has the most privileged position, right? Think of a state dinner in the White House or something even less formal. The, that, that person at the right hand of the head, that's the one who the host wants to hear from the most, Right? That's the most privileged position. That's the Father. The Father listens to what Jesus has to say about you. And the devil accuses and points out your sins. But God the Father will hear the one who died for you. Romans 8 puts it well. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It's Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, making intercession for us. That's what Ascension Day is all about. So like Melchizedek, who blesses Abraham, Jesus blesses us, the children of Abraham, from the throne. He covers our sins before the Father. He holds back the devil's accusations. He assures us of God's mercy when our own conscience convicts us. He sends the Spirit to teach us. He makes our prayers pleasing to the Father. So he's interceding in that way. I always think of the book of Esther when I think of intercession, right? That's the great interceding book of the Old Testament. When Esther saves the Jews from Haman's plot. And the king, towards the end of that book, he stops turning to Haman for advice. And he starts turning to Esther. What should we do now? Well, look what's happened. What should we do now, Esther? And Esther goes to Mordecai. What should we do now? And they write letters. And they make policy. Intercession in that way. It's not, we often think of intercession as sympathy, which is part of it. That's Hebrews 4. He's able to sympathize with our weakness. That's part of it. But it's also intervention, it's action. Right? Jesus doesn't just uh, sit on the throne empathizing with us. Oh, how awful that must be. He's also taking action to give you what you need. That's uh, Jesus the priest according to Melchizedek. Well, uh, Jesus is also king, and we see that in verses 5 through 7. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. Uh, We have a different kind of king, right? When Jesus comes in the Gospels, he talks about not using earthly patterns of authority, right? Uh, Threats and intimidation are are par for the course in politics in the city of man. Jesus warns his apostles away from it all. Uh, Authority is about service. Uh, Jesus says. It's about humility, not lording it over others. So Jesus Christ as king, he rules everything. 
Abraham Kuyper's, uh, one of my favorite quotes of his, he says, there's not one square inch of the universe over which Jesus Christ does not rightly call out, mine. It's all the Lord Jesus Christ's. So Jesus is a king, and that's what this psalm is all about. It's a royal psalm. Sit at my right hand, rule, take the scepter. So uh, for, quickly, four ways in which Jesus is king. Uh, verses 2 and 4 again, and 5, excuse me. Uh, there's four categories here. First of all, he rules over the church. Right? We read in Ephesians 1, when Christ takes all authority in heaven, what's the first thing that he does? Uh, God gives Jesus as head over all to the church. Ephesians 1.22 says. Uh, and Jesus tells us this is what he's going to do. In the upper room with his disciples, he says, I'm going to my Father, and that's going to be better for you. We can't understand that. How could that be better? We want Jesus to be with us. How could it be better for us? Well, because he's given us gifts that help us in that rule. So the, so the first act of Jesus' rule is to send the Spirit at Pentecost. An enormous help to his people. Uh, Ephesians 4 describes the ascension Paul describes the ascension there, and then he lists a few of those gifts. He's, also, he's given to the church pastors and elders and teachers and, and evangelists. We have the word of God given to rule us, sacraments to confirm to us the gospel truth. So Christ is, is ruling his church faithfully from his throne by giving us all these things. So that's one thing. Jesus is ruling the church. Second, Jesus rules Satan. Consider Jesus ruling Satan. The uh, book of Job always comes to mind here for me. Jesus was there when Satan comes to the divine council and God talks up Job. Right? Have you considered my servant Job? And Satan says, skin for skin. You're just protecting him, so that's why he loves you. Take it away, he'll turn against you. And so God gives Satan boundaries of what Satan can do to Job. Okay, try that out if you think that's true, but only this much. And, then, and so Satan goes out and goes right up to that point, takes, gives everything God will give him, but no more, because Jesus rules Satan. Right? Jesus, in the gospel, is one of the most intriguing verses in, in all of the Bible, when, when Jesus says, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Jesus was there. Jesus rules Satan. Jesus has plundered the strong man's house and rescued us. He's disarmed the powers and made a spectacle of them, Colossians 2 says. Jesus rules Satan. That's two. There's two more to go. Jesus rules you personally, right? Jesus picks you up out of the pit. He sat you on a rock, and he's remaking you in his image as his child. That's what you were made to be in the first place. And so he tells you who you were in your sins, who you are in Christ, where you're headed in glory. And for the present, he tells you what to do, what you may not do. He points out the fruit of the Spirit. He gives your, uh, you his gifts, spiritual gifts to serve him. He puts you in a covenant family, in his church, uh, to love and to be loved by his own people. All these, just the design of life, that Jesus is ruling his people well. Just an aside there, that's... That's why a rebellious culture always tries to mess with the design of life, right? The structure of how life's set up. A rebellious culture will always try to mess with that. 
Because that's, that's um, thumbing it in God's authority. God set things up this way. Well, we're going to mess with that. No way. Man, male or female? No, there's other options. But whatever it is. So God rules you. And finally, God rules the nations. And that takes us to the end of our psalm as well. Uh, God rules the na- Jesus rules the nations. He's going to execute judgment, verse 6. Uh, he's going to drink from the brook by the way. Uh, this is considering shattering kings, verse 5. And this is all future-looking, right? In the end, Jesus is going to uh, judge the nations who have rebelled against him. Now, that brings us back again to the ascension, right? When Jesus ascends to, to heaven, right, they're looking up at, they're staring up. Where'd he go? They're trying to see him, whatever it is. And the angels appear. And what do the angels say? The same Jesus who went up will return again the same way he came. The Bible connects ascension and return of Jesus very closely. The angels make that point. He's going to judge. He's going to come back and judge. Uh, And again, this is all put very poetically in in Psalm 110. I find uh, verse 7 very fascinating. Uh, You have kind of a chronology there. Jesus is going to shatter kings, verse 5, execute judgment, fill the nations with corpses, verse 6, shatter chiefs. That, that all takes an immense amount of resources and power. And then verse 7, he'll drink from the brook by the way and lift up his head. It's like that was a short day at the office, and I just got a drink and went home, and I feel fine. It's that kind of sense of verse 7. Jesus is going to judge with strength and remain refreshed, have plenty left over. The nations are a drop in the bucket to God, Isaiah 40 says. Jesus rules the nations, and he does so with ease. He is on the throne. He is sovereign. Uh, John 5, Jesus tells us that the Father has committed all judgment to the Son. Uh, Daniel 7, again, we see this this contrast. Uh, Daniel 7 is fascinating. I wanted to read the first eight verses uh, in Daniel 7. It's all about those beasts, right? Those beasts are depicting earthly kingdoms, the same ones that Psalm 110 says Jesus is going to shatter the kings that rebel against him, right? Those beasts are going to pass away, be put down. Uh, Even as they are devouring themselves, they're going to be devoured. So you have this great contrast in Daniel 7 between these four beasts, and usually we see them as representing kingdoms uh, like Babylon and Greece and Rome and so on. And and then in the midst of that fourth beast of Rome, uh, another uh, kingdom is set up, and that's the the Son of Man. And he receives all dominion and glory in a kingdom. So Jesus is ruling these nations, even though they have, and, and the depiction of the earthly kingdoms is, potent here. Verse 8 of Daniel 7. Uh, there's a mouth speaking great things. Uh, I think the New King James says pompous things, right? Earthly kingdoms tend to do that. They, they hire tons of speechwriters to produce a lot of rhetoric about how great the nation is, right? You have to be careful about that. Uh, uh, it was Herod, I think, in Acts 12, right, when they start saying, the voice of a god and not of a man. And Herod doesn't shut him up. And so he's, he uh, is struck down by God and dies. Earthly rulers uh, try to take too much to themselves with pompous words, with speaking great things. 
But contrast with that, the Son of Man in verse 13. That they also, just another aside, they also devour these beasts, these earthly kingdoms. They devour people. I've been reading in the paper um, two big anniversaries coming up this week. All right, June 4, Tiananmen Square, 30 years ago. One example of an earthly kingdom devouring its own people. Uh, same with, um, we have D-Day coming up as well this week, 75th anniversary. There you had a, a push against uh, the Nazi regime, which was devouring its own people. This is what earthly kingdoms in rebellion against God do. They end up devouring people. Jesus comes, and the wages of sin is, is death, and, and he will rule the nations. He's going to shatter those kings and give them their due. And that's, that's an enormous comfort to God's people. This often seems kind of out of place and too violent for, for us in, in our land, but uh, the persecuted church in China, they tell me, reads through the book of Daniel with great interest because this is happening. And, and, and they uh, love to hear about the Son of Man who will come and shatter kings. And the government there hates to have that word preached, and they suppress Bibles because Daniel's in there. And it speaks against those earthly kings. Ascension Day is, points us heavenward, of course, but there's also a, a very earthly uh, consideration. Jesus rules the nations. Well, this is enormously comforting to believers. Uh, Heidelberg Catechism on, on the return of Christ. Right after the Ascension, it looks to uh, the return of Jesus and says this, In all distress and persecution, with uplifted head, I confidently await the very judge who has already offered himself to the judgment of God in my place. Christ will cast all his enemies and mine into everlasting condemnation, but will take me and all his chosen ones to himself into the joy and glory of heaven. Wonderful words. Just summarizing again uh, scripture for us. Uh, it summarizes 2 Thessalonians 1, uh, where, where uh, Paul says that God is going to grant relief to those of you who are afflicted, as well as to us. Quoting now verse 7. When Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God, on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction. See, this is all following along with Psalm 110. What will happen uh, to those kings who don't uh, submit to the rule of Jesus? So that's, that's a future look uh, at the return of Christ. But uh, consider also, because Jesus has ascended to heaven and is sitting at the right hand of God now, Jesus rules the nations now. It's not as, just as if he's, he's let Satan have his day now, and I'll just hang back, but, but someday soon I'll return, and then, they'll, then I'll let him have it. Not, not that so much, because Jesus is ruling now. We see that in Acts chapter 4 when the apostles are pressured by the Sanhedrin not to preach the name of Jesus. And they say, we need to obey God rather than men. And against their threats, the apostles quote Psalm 2. And they apply Christ's rule to their life, to their persecution now. Jesus is on the throne. No one knew that better than them. Those apostles who saw him go up, right, who received the Spirit as tongues of fire ten days later. And yet they suffered immediate opposition and threats. So, uh, so it's not as if, as God's people, we ought to not expect suffering, opposition, 
and threats. The apostles did right away. A brief aside there, uh, note the Sanhedrin intimidated them on purpose as a tactic, right? They, they couldn't punish them anymore because they were favored by the people at the time. And so they just threatened and said, don't preach in this name anymore or you're going to have it. And they kind of leave it vague what might happen to them, right? That's a tactic. That's it, a common tactic in politics today in our culture, and we're noticing that. Right? I've seen stories, this isn't so much in the news right now, but college professors with a more conservative viewpoint that, that are invited to speak at another college, right? And they get bullied off the stage or disinvited due to the possible, possible threat of violence because students are upset. They don't want to hear that. That's a tactic. That's intimidation. Uh, the latest one I saw in the paper was... Um, that we have this possibility right now of maybe in the next few years of the Supreme Court considering Roe v. Wade again, maybe overturning Roe v. Wade. Uh, so now the, the left talks about the, the illegitimate Roberts Court, right? John Roberts, the, the Chief Justice. And he's a big one for uh, being prudent, being careful, right? Keeping precedent, being rational. Right? That, that's what he wants for his court. He doesn't want his court to be seen as illegitimate. That's the last thing he wants. So that's what they threaten him with. See? Intimidation. Threats. We're going we're gonna to take you out by reputation if you do something we don't like. These kinds of things. We need wisdom to recognize that kind of hostility. We need courage to resist it and to stand for our convictions. So... Uh, we need to look to, in faith to the throne of God when lesser thrones threaten us. So Jesus, in spite of all this, Jesus rules the nations now. Uh, something, some bit of ancient history you may not know. Uh, when the Roman emperors died, uh, it started right around the first century, actually, right when around Julius Caesar, I think it was, was the first. They started producing witnesses. After Caesar would die, his, his son or family or the close government there, they would produce witnesses that would say, we saw the emperor ascend to heaven to the gods when he died. And the state took the place of God. And then they would worship Caesar as the son of God. The New Testament sets the record straight on who God has really favored to sit at his right hand. It's a true ascension account. This really happened. And it wasn't Caesar. In his days, the true king was born. It isn't Donald Trump. It isn't uh, Xi Jinping. It isn't Putin. It isn't democracy. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. Every society, we find ways to idolize our leaders or our government. But God points us to his son. Acts chapter 7. I want to finish there. When Stephen is being stoned, he sees Jesus at God's right hand. And it points out that Jesus is standing at God's right hand. It says it twice, in fact, Acts 7, verse 55 and on. He's standing at God's right hand. Because when Jesus rules his church, he sits to rule. But when he sees his people persecuted, you know, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Persecuting me. He stands for that. When Handel's Messiah premiered in London in 1743, King George attended. And they came to the Hallelujah Chorus. And he was so moved that he stood up. 
Well, if the king stands, everybody has to stand. And so for 250 years now, we've all been standing for the Hallelujah Chorus. For that reason. It's a fascinating story. Jesus sits to rule, but he's been standing over his people's suffering and persecution ever since Stephen's stoning. All rise in the presence of Jesus the judge. He deserves all worship and every respect. But when his saints suffer, our Savior himself stands. So this is a ruler we can trust, who has all power. We can trust his timing. He's a good shepherd. No one can snatch us out of his hand. He defends his people. So let us look to him and trust him. Jesus rules and intercedes for us from the right hand of God until he returns. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for giving us a king, for giving us a a ruler. You are a faithful father, and you know what your people need. And one thing we need, Lord, is faithful rule. So we come before you as your children, humbly acknowledging this fact, admitting that we often want to be our own rulers. But Lord, you have been faithful to give us what we need. Or we pray for our uh, earthly rulers who are imperfect, but you have also given them for our needs. We pray for our president today. We pray for uh, rulers of every nation that you would grant uh, increased faithfulness, that they would kiss the sun, show loyalty to him. We thank you, Heavenly Father, uh, for uh, lifting our eyes uh, beyond uh, this Uh, earthly realm for the apostles gazing into heaven Lord let us set our minds on things above where Christ is that will affect our earthly dealings but Lord our life is with Christ in heaven we thank you for that we come before you in the name of Jesus Christ set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Kiss the son. And Revelation 19, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup runs over. Blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the lamb. Jesus tells us that the kingdom of heaven is like a king who arranged a marriage for his son. God the Father has set his son at his right hand. The wedding is being prepared. Here we have a wedding rehearsal where we remind ourselves how things are supposed to go when the day arrives. The day will involve a feast, a marriage supper of the Lamb, Revelation says. This humble table will transform into a glorious feast one day. Until then, God sets a table for us in the presence of our enemies. All Christ's enemies aren't under his footstool yet, but we patiently work and wait for that day to come. So when we sit here, we sit with Jesus, risen and reigning in the heavens. He hosts this table, the bridegroom of our hearts, the king of every ruler over all the earth. 
So here is where we come and kiss the Son, declare our loyalty to Him, our love for Him. We proclaim His death until He comes again. So let us receive Christ and rest on Him alone for our salvation today. Thank you for listening to this audio recording from Christ Church of Livingston County. If you would like further information about anything in this recording, the Bible, about Christ Church of Livingston County, or wish to make any other related inquiry, please feel free to contact us through our website, ChristKirkMI.com. That's C-H-R-I-S-T-K-I-R-K-M-I.com. Again, thank you and blessings.